Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. First off, I'd like to recommend our new pop-up podcast called the O'Reilly Bots Podcast, which you can find on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud. On today's episode, I speak with Adam Marcus, co-founder and CTO of B12, a startup focused on building human-in-the-loop intelligent applications. We talked about the open source platform Orchestra, which is used for coordinating human-in-the-loop projects, the current wave of human-assisted AI applications, best practices for reviewing and scoring experts, and Flash Teams. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Adam Marcus, CTO and co-founder of D12, a human-assisted AI startup based in New York City. Welcome to the Data Shop. Thank you, Ben. So let's uh, start by introducing your audience. So you have a PhD in computer science. What was your area of research at MIT? Uh, yeah, so at, at MIT, I did a bunch of research at the intersection of databases and social computing. Uh, and my PhD thesis was on a system called Quark that allowed people to do uh, all sorts of interesting query processing with humans in the loop. Uh, so essentially through Quark, you were able to write uh, queries in, in languages like SQL or Pig uh, to process your data sets so you could filter, sort, join, and aggregate your data sets. But you did it with the help of workers, paid workers, on platforms like Amazon's Mechanical Turk. And so that means that now your data set doesn't have to be a fully structured data set. You can deal with really uh, challenging to tame data that's not fully clean, that's not fully structured, and do things like filter large image data sets with the help of people all over the world who you pay to help clean it up further. Um, you could do things like join two data sets that refer to companies with different names. So can you tell me whether IBM and international business machines are the same company? And Quark would take your query, figure out the right folks to send that, send the, um, the data operations to and clean up your data set for you. So uh, in previous episodes of this podcast, I've had uh, two academic database professors who are also startup entrepreneurs on this show, Ihab Ilyas of Tamer and Joe Hellerstein of Trifacta. And uh, both far more accomplished than me. Yeah, so. yeah. But during the course of my conversation with both of them, uh, this whole human in the loop uh, topic came up. And uh, so it may come as a surprise to people who don't follow academic database research that closely. But this is a line of research in that, in that discipline, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, there's really amazing work. Um, the, the, the two other large scale efforts that went on at the same time as we were doing Quark at MIT, uh, were the ones at, at Berkeley, uh, with the CrowdDB project, um, where again, they were building a, a crowd powered database that, that focused on more open world problems. So when you don't know what all of the elements in the data set are, how do you collect all of that data? Uh, and then the work that Aditya Parameshwaran at Stanford did on DECO. And DECO, I'd say, was probably the, the most principled of the systems in terms of just a lot of the modeling that went into them and, and how much machine learning and human-in-the-loop computing that Aditya worked on. And I actually, I had the pleasure of working 
with Aditya on a book on crowd-powered data processing systems, where we kind of summarized the state of the art of all the academic research in processing data sets uh, with the help of crowdsourced, re- uh, crowdsourced workers. And we also had the opportunity to interview a bunch of industry users of crowdsourcing and then a bunch of marketplaces that provided crowdsourcing to see really how what the gap is between industry research and how, uh, sorry, academic research and how it's used in industry. Yeah, and what, uh, in uh, talking to all three of you, what strikes me is that uh, this particular subfield in computer science uh, really play, pays close attention to users. You know, because the, mm-hmm. uh, the stereotype is database people, they're o- they only care about optimizer. Though yeah. If you listen to people in this community, they really pay close attention to what users need in particular. For example, data preparation is, is another topic that uh, people in this community uh, uh, tackle. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think the community started off listening to where the the dollars were you could argue you know very early on it was just about how to like what are the major data processing needs that various uh large companies have and i think the industry has really shifted into just what are the hard data cleaning visualization preparation and then you know analytics and business intelligence and machine learning and modeling problems that that folks have and I, i'd say it's become a lot more user centric over over the past few years. And so your interest in this kind of human in the loop human assisted computation carried over to what you did right after uh, grad school which is when I met you uh, when you were at local. That's right. Yeah, so out of grad school I had the great fortune of joining the founding team at Loku where I headed up the team that that um did all the machine learning, uh, human-assisted AI, and crowdsourcing work that allowed us to do web-scale data extraction. So specifically, if you've ever been to, you know, the Foursquare, Google, TripAdvisor, Yelp, and seen a menu link, it might say powered by Loku at the bottom. We figured out what every restaurant in the English language world was charging for food. Um, and we did this by crawling the web, figuring out uh, what different, uh, where the different local merchant price lists were so the you know yoga studio pdf uh, of their services or a restaurant's flash animation with their menu in it we had a bunch of really awesome uh, machine learning and machine extraction to take a first pass at classifying what we thought was a menu item and what we thought was a uh, you know the price of that menu item and then we paid a few hundred people all over the web to clean up the data for us further. And as, as you said, it was this, this human in the loop experience where the, the machine learning models would get more accurate as the experts on our platform corrected them. Um, so, and, uh, and a few, oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So in the, in the, I'm not sure exactly how long you were at local, let's say two years. So let's say you were at local for two years. Did you see the amount of automation increase by a certain percentage over time? Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the, the cool thing that you, that you do when you're building all sorts of automated models, in our case, it, it was a lot of classifiers that we were building. When you don't have a lot of data, um, and training data, then you build some pretty simple rules based models. And by the time we had finished, we'd built out, you know, the, the third version of our classifiers that really could use web scale features. So we had, processed a few million menus, 
Um, we had all this training data from folks on our platform cleaning up the data for us further. And the predictive accuracy of the classifiers that we were able to build with all that training data was was far better in version three than in version one. And, so, uh, and yeah, you started you started out rules space, which means you knew exactly how the classifier worked, and then mm -hmm. over time it became more and more of a black box. Uh, yeah. So yeah, you, you know, you start off with with some some basic rules, looking for you know dollar signs with numbers next to them for prices, and you get to the point where you have all of these. Uh, tokens from your crawls of the web that you can learn which ones correlate nicely with menu items versus section titles, etc. And at that point, the models get a lot more complicated. You've got, you know, gradient descent, random forest, etc. And uh, as you were as as you were winding down at local, you started kind of, I think, thinking about uh, just uh, much more complex tasks for uh, human-assisted computation which eventually led to you and your founders uh, starting an open source project called Orchestra. So describe Orchestra. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll take one step back from that. So, you know, I had an awesome time at Loku. We were acquired by GoDaddy and I spent another year and a half there. So I spent a total of three years doing all of this kind of web scale structured data extraction. And toward the end of that, I started speaking with Natash Banta, my co-founder at B12. Uh, and we said, hey, you know, it's really awesome that you can coordinate all of these experts all over the world um, and give them all of these human-assisted AIs to take a first pass at work so that a lot of the rote labor goes away and you can use humans where they're uniquely positioned. But we really only managed to make a dent in data extraction and, uh, and, and data entry. And we thought that, you know, an interesting work model was emerging here where you had human-assisted AIs and they were able to help experts do way more interesting knowledge work tasks. So we're interested at B12 uh, about pushing this all of this work up the knowledge work stack. And the first stop to that was building out the infrastructure to make this possible. And that is where Orchestra comes in. So Orchestra, uh, we actually announced it at, at the Strata conference uh, a few it's months ago. It's open source. For those of you listening, it's on GitHub. I will put a link up on this post. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's completely open source. It's available for anyone to use on, on GitHub and contribute to. We've got a nice community on Gitter. And what Orchestra does is basically serve as the infrastructure for building all sorts of human-in-the-loop um, and human-assisted AI applications. It essentially helps coordinate teams of experts that are working on really challenging workflows and pairs them up with all sorts of automation, custom user interfaces, and tools to make them a lot more effective at their job. And sort of the first product that we've built on top of Orchestra is an intelligent website product to give you a sense of how this works. So a client will come to us and say that they'd like to, you know, get their web presence set up for them. Uh, Orchestra will quickly recruit the best designer, the best client executive, the best copywriter onto a team, and it'll follow predefined workflow. So the, the client executive will be scheduled to interview the client. Then once an interview is completed, 
A designer is then staffed onto the project automatically. A human-assisted AI, essentially uh, an algorithmic design, is run so that we can take some of the client's preferences and automatically generate a few stabs at different websites for them. And the designer is presented with those and gets to make the, the critical creative design decisions. And other folks are brought onto the project by orchestra as needed. So if we need a copywriter, if we need more expertise, then orchestra can recruit them. And so essentially what orchestra is, is a workflow management tool that brings together all sorts of experts, automates a lot of the really annoying project management functionality that you typically have to bring just project managers onto a project for and empowers all of the experts with all sorts of automation so that they can focus on what they're uniquely positioned to do. So it seems like uh, I'm tempted to take it a step further. So in this kind of uh, spectrum of AI, you have the pure machine intelligence and then augmentation. This seems mm -hmm. like uh, it falls squarely on the augmentation side in the sense that the uh, in the working example you gave, you actually algorithmically provide some of the initial designs for the expert, right? So, I, I mean, so, but that's where it is now. So, you can imagine over time that initial design gets better and better. So, maybe, I, that's absolutely, yeah. So, so, maybe it's no the, longer kind of the initial design. Maybe it's like uh, uh, it would become effectively the equivalent of the third or fourth iteration at that point, right? I, I think that's that's a that's a really interesting way of looking at it. Um, I, I think every experience that I've had in thinking that automation would take you all the way to the finished product, I've been proven wrong. And so I think you're absolutely right that with more data, more training data, and just more experience, the kinds of algorithms that we can build, the kinds of classifiers and models that we can build are going to get way more accurate. Um, in, the, in the case of things like web design, we have access to the entire web, this beautiful open corpus that we can crawl and learn from, and then learn from our clients' preferences and our experts' decisions over time. And I'm, I'm positive that our algorithmic design will get only better over time and do way more than it does now. Um, I still believe you're, you're absolutely right that, that it's all about augmentation um, in, in the sense that I don't believe that we'll ever completely obviate the need for these amazing expert designers that we have on our platform, for example. So there's always going to be a human in the loop and the humans are going to get to focus on the really, really challenging creative and analytical tasks. And all of the really annoying rote repetitive work is going to be the stuff that we're able to automate away really, really effectively. That is until we get to super intelligence. Pat. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, the, in, in the world of AI, right, we've got these these narrow AIs and these broad AIs. And I think as soon as folks start bringing out these super intelligences that are super broad and just replace cognition, I think we'll all be in, in a different world. But at, at the moment, I've all I've seen are some really effective narrow AIs, and they're definitely augmenting how we do work, which is super exciting. And to be honest, even your... Uh... Your previous experience at local, right, which is structured data extraction at, at yep. scale, as, as you pointed out, is it's impossible to do that with the precision you need uh, without humans in the loop. That, that's absolutely right. Yeah, a far simpler task, which is also very challenging. We never got to the point where it was completely automated. We Every single revision of our classifiers got us that much closer. Um, and so it shaved a lot of the really annoying minutes or hours that an expert 
would have to spend on on the platform. But we still needed people to look over the work of the AIs, and and almost always there was something to correct. You know, so the example you gave of designers also reminds me of uh, a previous guest I've had here, Eric Colson of Stitch Fix. I'm not sure if you're. Oh yeah, right. So yeah, yeah and they, that was a great podcast. Yeah, yeah, it's a augmentation for sure because. Uh, the final decision is with the fashion fashion expert. The fashion expert mm-hmm. uh, uses a recommendation engine uh, that suggests possible clothing items to send to a client, but then they make the final call. Yep, I, I think I think that's a really nice example of it, and and that that's actually a really nice example where it's a super creative task, right? I mean, fashion defines who we are in in many ways, at least on on the outside. Uh, but the decision is still a relatively simple one, right? There's some kind of collaborative filtering. There's some yes or no decision that you can make on any pair of people and, you know, an outfit that, that you can send their way, for example. Um, and, and so I think that's a great example of a place where we still need human beings to make relatively simple decisions because even just saying yes or no to a person in an outfit is challenging once you jump into more generative processes so things like you know intelligent websites in our case design even things like you know data analytics you you get you have so many decisions and they're so open ended that machines can absolutely help but humans are and expertise are absolutely necessary so there's one thing I want to emphasize about orchestra in case uh, the listeners missed, which is uh, so Adam has stopped. Uh, uh, Adam and I have been talking uh, over the last few minutes about the kind of the power of uh, augmentation and uh, human-assisted AI. But one of the things that orchestra does is basically automate many of the things Adam has learned over many years of managing these human-assisted AI projects, right? Yeah, I, I I think that's a really nice way to put it. So in orchestra, I guess, folks, th- this is a data show. And so the folks listening are probably really familiar with things like, you know, data flows and, and workflow programming systems and things like that. Um, in orchestra, what you do is you declaratively describe a workflow where various steps are either completed by humans or machines. And it's orchestra's job at that point to either run the algorithms when it's time for a machine to jump in. So in our case, it's algorithmic design to take a a first pass at designing a website. But it's also orchestra's job to look at, you know, which steps in the workflow have been completed and when it should do things like staff a project. Notice that, um, you know, the people executing the work are maybe falling off course on, on the project and that we need more active process management. Bring in things like incentives and bring in a bunch of interesting research that I'll get into later on things like review hierarchies. So um, the way we've accomplished all of this kind of project automation in orchestra is through bots. Um, so that's super popular topic right now. Um, th- the way it works for us is uh, orchestra is pretty tightly integrated with Slack. This, this, at this point, probably everyone has used Slack for communicating with some kind of organization. Um, whenever an expert is brought into a project that orchestra is working on, uh, it'll invite that expert to a Slack channel where all of the other experts on their team are also sitting. Uh, and, and so since the experts on our platform are using orchestra and Slack together, 
we've created these bots that help automate process and project automation. And so all sorts of things like staffing, process management, incentives, review hierarchies are managed through conversation. Um, and I think the probably the most... The, the, so the, uh, did you, did oh, you yeah, create kind of a, a, uh, did you create a shortcut language? Yeah, exactly. So I, I'll give you the example in the world of staffing, for example. Um, before we added staffing functionality, uh, to orchestra, whenever we wanted to bring a designer onto a project, we'd have to, you know, send a bunch of messages over Slack. Hey, is anyone available to work on a project? They didn't have a lot of context. And so sometimes it would take about an hour of work for us to actually do the recruiting and experts wouldn't get back to us for, you know, upwards of a day or two days. And so we built a staff bot into orchestra. And now the staff bot has a sense of how well experts have completed various tasks in the past, how much they already have on their plate. And it can create a ranking of the experts on the platform and reach out to the ones that are the best matches first and kind of go down the list from there. And so now with this automated staffing, it requires no human work, right? We just say in, in the shortcut language, Hey, staff bot, can you staff project or, or task 30? Uh, Orchestra will figure out who the best experts are for, to complete that task that are available, reach out to them over Slack and say, hey, here's a client brief for this particular project. Uh, would you like to accept the task and join the team? An expert just has to click a button and all of a sudden they're, they're integrated into the orchestra project and integrated into the Slack group that's completing that task. And we've pushed the time to staff people from upwards of a few days down to a little less than five minutes to bring a designer onto a project and have them start doing work. So Adam, for, for people who don't follow uh, human in the loop, computing that closely a couple of questions one how does orchestra's algorithm decide which expert is best suited and mm -hmm. two how how does orchestra learn over time how, how does the reviewing do and the scoring of the experts happen great those are those are two great questions so i guess to answer the first question um Orchestra is relatively pluggable, right? You can declaratively tell Orchestra to have a workflow execute in a bunch of different ways programmatically. Um, there's a number of different ways that you can tell it to rank experts for staffing purposes. And you alluded to one way, which is, you know, by doing things like learning which experts are really good at various tasks. This is based on research that we did at Loku slash GoDaddy. We published a paper on it at VLDB 2015. And it's, it's this, this idea of review hierarchies. So what we do in orchestra is when an expert first joins our platform, we don't know, let, let's say that they're certified as a designer. We don't know whether they're an amazing uh, designer, the best one on our platform, or whether they're going to need some mentorship and review along the way. So Orchestra, when it recruits them onto a project, is also going to recruit a reviewer or an art director onto that project. And while the entry-level designer is going to do the majority of the heavy lifting in the work, that art director is going to review their work and give them feedback. And this has two effects. The first one is that we can dramatically increase the quality of the work product that we have so that our clients don't see a bunch of mistakes along the way if it's a designer that needs a bit more help. But the other thing that it allows us to do is learn over time 
whether this designer is really good at doing their work and we should actually just let them do their thing without giving them a bunch of feedback or whether there's someone that could actually use the mentorship. And over time, our staff bot functionality can learn these properties of people for design, for copywriting, for a bunch of different kinds of expertise and staff projects appropriately. Um, in the VLDB 2015 paper, what we showed is that, you know, you have a fixed budget for review. So there's only so much attention that a reviewer can spend in a given day. And we can actually build a predictive model. We built a regression that looked at a task, looked at the experts working on the task, looked at a, a, a few hundred different uh, features or factors, things like the time of day, the person working on it, how well they've done in the past, et cetera, and could predict um, with really reasonable accuracy, how much their work would change if we brought a reviewer onto the project. And all of a sudden, with that predictive model, we were able to tell reviewers which projects could use their attention most effectively. And we were able to increase the quality of the output, the amount of mentorship that uh, entry-level experts got. Uh, and we were able to staff a lot more effectively because of it. And we've baked a bunch of these learnings into Orchestra. So if you if you've got if, if you've got access to GitHub, then you could you could do this right now. Yeah, and the, and the great thing about it is you're basically leveraging a lot of uh, uh, research that went into how how to uh, manage these projects well. One question, Adam, on uh, the word box. So right now, when you say bots and Slack, sometimes people think of chat bots. So mm -hmm. are you talking about the same thing? So sort of. I, I think when, when people think about chatbots, there's some really challenging uh, natural language processing um, and just just conversational problems that you have to solve in order to have a general conversation with a, with a generic bot. Our problem is easier on the conversational side of things. So essentially, the experts that we have are already coordinating with each other over Slack. So a natural place to add more coordination, if we're bringing in things like automated staffing requests and process management requests and things like that, is inject yourself into that conversation that they're already having. And so we do this through these bots, but bots don't have the challenge of having to just parse natural language, understand anything that's going on in the project. They have a far more directed and well-defined grammar. So, you know, to answer the question, would you like to work on this project? I'll, you can basically say yes or no, or you can click a button that says, I accept this task or I reject this task. And so, you know, getting to chatbots is really interesting. And I think it's going to be really important to be able to solve that those really hard natural language processing problems, especially once you want to try to figure out, you know, is this project going well overall? Are people getting in a fight, et cetera? We're going to have to solve a lot of those problems, but the kinds of bots that we have right now are simpler in terms of the kinds of conversations that you can have with them. So I'm helping organize the first O'Reilly AI conference. And uh, one of the things that's clear is that uh, AI is a hot topic. There are people who are trying to build platforms, mainly the, the bigger companies, but there's, there are also companies targeting much more narrow applications. There are also companies who are realizing that, you know, Maybe AI technologies themselves are not uh, quite ready, so you still need to build kind of this human-assisted AI application. So yep. 
are you finding kind of a uh, kind of uh, resurgence in human-assisted AI research both in and outside academia? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think if, if I were to characterize the resurgence, I would say that there's two things going on. One is that artificial intelligence's capabilities have, over the past few years, gotten really, really, really interesting um, and have, have pushed the limits on what we, we previously thought we could do with AI. And the other is a bunch of recent research in how to build systems to allow people to work in a distributed fashion. Um, so a bunch of research in, into these systems that help coordinate people doing work online. And so I guess to tackle the first one, there's been this really amazing renaissance in AI. We're coming out of the, what's called the AI winter, where there weren't too many exciting things going on. And coming into a world where all of a sudden these narrow AIs can solve some really important rote labor tasks. We're talking about, you know, cars that can drive us around and autopilot us. We're talking about personal assistance. So, you know, one, one startup in New York called X.AI has this personal assistant named Amy. Facebook has Facebook M that you can coordinate with on Facebook Messenger. Um, and so and there's even, a bunch uh, of really... Even, uh, actually, yep. Adam, even uh, something uh, that's not whose AI is not that sophisticated, has really captured the imagination of many people, which is, I'm talking about here, Amazon Echo and Alexa. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, you can actually have reasonable conversations with, with machines now, which is, which is super interesting. Um, so we've got all these primitives, right? You have autopilot, you have personal assistance, you, you have all this speech recognition technology that's, that's really coming to the foreground. The other thing that you have is a combination of these primitives that push on things that we previously thought required human creativity and analytical capability. So probably the canonical example, recent example here is are things like AlphaGo, where not only did a machine beat a human being several times in a row at a really complex game like Go, uh, but it actually... Uh, did it with a bunch of creative approaches that actually taught, you know, a, a, a master at Go how, like, these various techniques that that made them way better at at playing the game. And so AIs are slowly pushing on uh, areas of human creativity and analytical capabilities, but they're nowhere near, you know, the kinds of expertise that you need to complete real work. Um, and, also, and also for many of the uh, more interesting examples, it just requires... Big data and massive compute. That's that's absolutely right. Yeah. So you know when when I talk about our our area of the world and things like intelligent websites, you know you you've got to crawl the entire web, you've got to process the entire web, and you have to build all these predictive models on top of it. It's it's generally the case that the more data that you have and the more machine machines you have in order to process it, the 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 more accurate of models that you can build. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I said that there's sort of two things that are bringing around this renaissance in human-assisted AI. The first is the AI itself is getting interesting. The second is a bunch of research into things that started off being called crowdsourcing and are now, now moving into more and more challenging knowledge work tasks. So I, I think the, the first area of research I'd love to highlight here is research out of Stanford. Um, a graduate student named Daniela Rotelny there is uh, pioneering work in uh, a research area called Flash Teams and Flash Organizations. Uh, we're actually super lucky she's going to be joining us to head up product when she finishes her PhD. So the word um, is just similar to like the Flash Crowd, Flash Mob? Yes, except 
far more um, far, far more productive. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So essentially, what, what I think the the key area of the Flash Teams research, the thing that that uh, made it win a Best Paper Award at WIST a few years back, uh, is is what they showed was basically take a set of experts that are really good at what they do, recruit them off of platforms like you know Upwork and, and other work platforms, and have them do some really complex tasks in collaboration with one another over the, over the internet. Um, so give them a napkin sketch of uh, a mobile application and have them build that mobile application or ask them to build, uh, to, to create for you an educational video and let them do their thing. And they're experts. They're going to do a really amazing job at it. Uh, but once you bring in a system to help coordinate those experts, uh, so in, in Daniela's case, she built out a system called Foundry. Um, Foundry has a lot of similar, I, I should say Orchestra has a lot of similarities to Foundry. Um, essentially, it provides scaffolding for projects so that experts get suggestions of what they should be doing next. And those experts are going to complete their work with the help of these systems at the same level of quality, but in half the time. So you're talking about going from two days to take that napkin sketch into a mobile app and turn it into a one day to build the mobile app, which is, it's pretty mind blowing when you think about how hard it is for people to get really hard work done. But the, the Um, the, the key here seems to be teams and organizations. It used to be people would go into these services and just maybe hire one person. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, you know, these online work marketplaces are useful for finding one-off experts, uh, but, but there's a whole new level of abstraction that you want to put on top of it. The first, the first level of abstraction is at the level of the team. And we can talk about it a bit more later if you'd like, but the next level of abstraction is how do you actually build an organization of the future? And that's the research that Danielle is doing next. So in terms of, uh, the, Next generation organization. So your so there's some speculation that you can build uh, maybe even uh, a company out of this these ideas and tools. Absolutely. Um, so the if if you think about flash teams as solving uh, a, you know as coming together to solve the problems of of a specific project. In our case, it would be web design or creating a video or creating a an app or something like that. A flash organization is one that self-documents. So you start to get these repeatable processes and workflows that you can use down the line. And they also start to build in things that you traditionally see in organizational behavior, things like hierarchies. So at some point, you need a form of management. uh, And these flash organizations are able to take this concept that traditionally psychologists and or- organizational behaviorists think about and turn them into things that a system can reason about, create. And I think the long-term vision for it is we're right now we, we live in a world where machines can coordinate small teams of people, you know, five people make a website, make an app or something like that. In the future, you're going to see entire research organizations formed around an idea um, coordinated online, turned into another organization that does a bunch of development, turned into another organization that productizes it, and 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 it's going to be a lot more fluid than what we typically think of in terms of like forming a company, incorporating, hiring people. These things are going to be a lot more ephemeral, and there's going to be a lot more uh, computer systems that manage them. What about um, uh, organizational memory? 
right? So I imagine, for example, uh, in your case, as you were leaving Lohu, you had to mm -hmm. uh, train people to uh, carry on what you were doing. Yeah, so I, I think that's that's one of the focuses of stuff like the Flash Organizations research. Um, there's actually been other forms of research in, in this around. It, it actually comes up in the world of personal assistance as well, where... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whenever, whenever you know you have a system recruit someone, they do some work for you, and then they go away. You somehow have to retain all the things that you learned and pass them on to the next person. So there's huge context transfer in just completing a single task or a single project for someone. And at the next level, you're absolutely right. You want these things to learn over time. And I, I, I think the way. I, I, I don't want to speak to it too much um, be, because I'm, I'm not the pro at Flash organizations necessarily. You should probably have Daniela come on your show. Um, but, uh, but, but the way to think about this is this is where you start building in things like hierarchies, not for the purposes of review like we did at Loku to improve things like quality or, or predict who needs more mentorship, but for the purposes of building in that institutional memory. So it's people's job now to document the process and to pass it on to the next generation. So uh, looking ahead, um, mm -hmm. so there will be more products, more organizations uh, leverage, leveraging human-assisted uh, AI tools and ideas. But uh, what mm -hmm. about the, what are some of the ethical and policy implications? Yeah, this is. I think this is this is a really really important question, and at least a B twelve. We kind of see this coming and, and we've formed the company in a way that will allow us to make the right decisions. And that might mean looking even beyond things just purely like profit. Um, so, uh, I can get into some, there's, there's a number of organizations that also think this way and I can get into them in a moment. But essentially what we're talking about here is all of a sudden you're, you're building systems that have feelings, right? It's no longer a data flow system but it's a workflow system. And so you're recruiting people uh, who are spending you know, eight hours a day doing work. Um, there's really interesting questions around incentives, around motivation, around employment models. Yeah, I, yeah. I think free, you're seeing free, this. Freelancer question. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. There's, so, and it's two sides, right? Freelance is this wonderful idea where you can work as much as you want on whatever you want from wherever you want at any time that you want, right? There's, there's a lot of benefit to the free part of freelancer. Um, but it's not great when it's imposed on you. Maybe you want a more traditional or employment you want, you uh, want relationship. Paid, you want paid vacation. Yeah. So yeah, as a society, we have to come up on these questions as well, right? Do you, do we want to tie basic things that, that we take for granted in traditional employment models, so things like insurance and vacation and all these other things, to employment? Or do we want to just say as a society, these are things that are really important to us and they're so important to us that they, they go beyond the workplace. Um, so things like employment models, labor models, compensation, all these things become critically important. And so to, to that point, you know, as a company, We've signed on to a number of different efforts. Probably the, the most relevant one here is the Good Work Code, 
um, which are it's it's a set of really <laughs> it, it it should be basic and and more companies should feel this way, but it's it's a set of tenets that define what good respectable forms of work should be, how to set up relationships with. Uh, the folks that are working on these new work platforms and how to make it a responsible thing as as a society. We're also, you know, we've built ourselves out. We're in the process of becoming a, a B certified corporation. So essentially signaling to think folks like our shareholders that we absolutely care about profit, but there's a number of other social contexts that we also care about and want to optimize for. And so I hope that as companies build more of these systems out and benefit from, from a lot of these awesome human-assisted AIs that, that are coming around, they also think about the social and ethical implications of these. So you're a technical person, so let's close <laughs> this uh, podcast by having you uh, speculate or, or at least uh, list some of the uh, challenging uh, infrastructure questions surrounding human-assisted AI. So wh what are you looking at and uh, uh, what are people working on? Yeah, so I, I think the, at the end of the day, from an infrastructure perspective, so the, the, the systems builders of the world bake it out into you know, three metrics. It's cost, quality, and latency. Um, so how much does it cost? to get a certain thing done. And that might be in terms of compute power, that might be in terms of a training budget, it might be in terms of just paying someone to complete a particular task. Um, there's quality, which um, there's been a ton of awesome research from a, from a bunch of different areas um, in how you get really high quality work um, out of a collaboration between a number of, of people. And the last is latency, right? And there's an interplay between all of these. So we want to build systems that allow people to optimize for different versions of cost, quality, and latency. And I think the key thing to remember here is that you can't think about this infrastructure the way you think about traditional software. There's This is a hugely socio-technical problem. So the infrastructure is the technical part, but there's... There's so many problems that aren't computer science problems. Um, and folks doing research in things like organizational uh, psychology, organizational research, uh, economics, and other social sciences have been thinking about this for a long time. And their fields have a ton to contribute here. Um, so I, I, think, I think bridging the gap between computer science and a lot of the other social sciences will be critical to, to making this a, a really excellent future of work. And actually, this is uh, uh, on the human-assisted AI topic, this is one of the areas where I, I think a lot of the exciting things are happening in both places, both industry and academia. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that's definitely something that we saw in, in our book is that there's a bunch of really interesting research that's being done in academia. Industry is actually contributing quite a bit to, uh, research. So I'm actually, I'm, I'm co-chairing, uh, the human, the human computation conferences industry and practice track, uh, this, this coming fall. And we're seeing a ton of awesome ideas coming in, not just from academia, but also from industry. And the last thing is that th there is a mismatch, right? There's industries putting in, in, at least in the survey that we did, you know, there's, there's companies that are dedicating tens of workers, full-time employees, millions of dollars worth of budget to building out these human in the loop and human assisted AI systems. 
Um, and there's still a gap between where academia has been contributing and where industry would like things to go. And it's going to be a really exciting future as, as both of these groups get together and, and focus on some of the hard problems. Well, this has been great. Uh, thank you, Adam Marcus. Thank you very much, Ben. You can follow Adam Marcus on Twitter at MarkuA. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.